you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Hey y'all, this is Phil Baker of Reclaiming the Faith. This is episode 81, The Apocrypha. I think it's going to be a blessing to you. But before we get into the show notes, I just want to let you know that my album, which is called Babylon, is coming out in just a few days uh, on August 11th. And so this is a preview of one of those songs off of that album. And this song is called Watchman's Cry. So that was an excerpt of song number five off my upcoming album. And that song is called Watchman's Cry. All right. So be on the lookout for that on August 11th. Today, I'm getting into what is often called the Apocrypha, books that were in the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and how the early Christians heavily relied on these books. I think this episode is going to be eye-opening to many of you, and it's going to be a blessing to you for sure. And if this episode is a blessing to you, I really want to encourage you to leave a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. If you have any questions about this episode, please email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com and I'll be sure to get back to you about that. You can find links to everything I've done on philsbaker.com, links to my book, my music, the blog, Obviously, the podcast, all of that you can find at philsbaker.com. And I really want to encourage you to become a Patreon of mine at patreon.com slash philsbaker. Twice a month, I put, out a, I put out videos. I put one video out about the early Christians uh, or an early Christian document. And I also put out a, an acoustic version of one of my original songs. And for those who are becoming new subscribers... And for my previous subscribers, I'm going to give you as well free copies of my album. All right. So please check that out with a, uh, you know, if you're going to subscribe for $5 or more, you're going to get those two videos and also um, wave files of all of my new material, my new music. So please check that out. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And again, if you have anything you want to ask 
please email us or you can visit us uh, on BDK's YouTube channel, Omega Frequency, when we do that monthly live uh, Ready With An Answer program. So check that out. And you can also check out um, my YouTube channel, Phil S. Baker, where my wife and I have been doing a weekly Bible study through the book of Philippians. Well, all the early Christian quotes I use can generally be found on the uh, CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can buy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 81 rolling. Have you ever been taught that after the book of Malachi, God was silent for over 400 years until the events surrounding the birth of Jesus? I know it's really common and it's taught as orthodoxy. What's interesting is that if you had asked a first century Jew or first century Christian, they would not have agreed with that statement. Around 250 BC, the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint was translated in Alexandria, Egypt. The Bible, it was the Bible of the common people who spoke Greek. In addition to the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Septuagint contained the books of Judith, Tobit, Baruch, Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, the Wisdom of Solomon, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the two books of Esdras, additions to the book of Esther, additions to the book of Daniel, and the prayer of Manasseh. These books are frequently called by the name Apocrypha, which means hidden. However, you should know that the 1st century Christians and Jews didn't call them apocryphal books. They called them scripture, for they were part of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Also, about 90% of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. Clearly, this is the preferred Bible of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews, which was written to Jewish Christians, heavily relies on the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and not the Hebrew. That itself should be a major eye-opener to us. Not only did the first century Gentile Christians depend on the Septuagint, the Jews did as well. A great example of this truth is displayed in Luke 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry. Verse 16 begins, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, Jesus is in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath. He's given the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah 61. If you turn to this passage in the Old Testament, however, 
This is how it reads based on the Masoretic text. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, did you notice the main difference between the Luke 4 passage and the Masoretic text's version of Isaiah 61? There's one phrase in the prophecy that is missing in the Hebrew, which is present in the Greek. And it says, and recovery of sight to the blind. So here in Jesus's first public address in the synagogue in his hometown, he's not reading a Hebrew scroll. He's reading from the Septuagint. And he says that the, the scripture has been fulfilled in him. Jesus calls the Septuagint scripture, the Septuagint, which contains the books which many call the Apocrypha, Jesus calls scripture. Not surprisingly, then, the New Testament contains numerous references to these books in what is called the Apocrypha. Hebrews 11.35 is an indisputable reference to 2 Maccabees 7. It says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and here's the key, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. Matthew 24 has numerous references to 1st and 2nd Maccabees. In fact, I did an entire podcast on Matthew 24's connection to 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which I would encourage you to check out. The Feast of Dedication, which is mentioned in John chapter 10, is also a direct reference back to 1st Maccabees chapter 4 verse 59. Sirach uh, chapter 7 verse 14 says, Do not babble in the assembly of the elders and do not repeat yourself when you pray. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds a whole lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 through 23, Paul writes, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Well, speaking of wise, that sounds a whole lot like several passages from the book of Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon. So, listen to these verses, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. For all People who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists, nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. Chapter 12, verse 24, For they went far astray on the paths of error, accepting as gods those animals that even their enemies despised. They were deceived like foolish infants. In verse, sorry, chapter 11, verse 15 of Wisdom of Solomon. In return for their foolish and wicked thoughts, 
which led them astray to worship irrational serpents and worthless animals, you sent upon them a multitude of irrational creatures to punish them. Those are just a handful of the numerous, numerous New Testament references to what's called the Apocrypha. The Anti-Nicene writers contain over 300 quotations from the Apocrypha and references to it. And when they do reference or quote the Apocrypha, they use very respectful language. Listen to this. This is in the Epistle of Barnabas, which I did a um, a Patreon video for. And this is in chapter 6. And this is written somewhere between 70 to 90 AD, most likely. He writes, The prophet also says, The stone that the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. What does the prophet say again? The assembly of the wicked surround me. They encompass me as bees do a honeycomb. And upon my garments they cast lots. Therefore, since he was about to be manifested and to suffer in the flesh, his soul, his suffering was predicted. For the prophet speaks about Israel. Woe to their soul, because they have counseled an evil counsel against themselves, saying, Let us bind the just one, because he is displeasing to us. Now, you may be saying, hold on a second, that sounds a lot like the the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 118, and he's quoting Psalm 22. You're right, he does, and he calls the, the writers of those Psalms prophets. But then, what about the prophet he speaks of that says, Woe to their soul, because they have counseled an evil counsel against themselves, saying, Let us bind the just one, because he's displeasing to us. Where's that in your Old Testament? Well, if you're reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's in Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 12. And he speaks to the author of that book with the same respect that he speaks to the the writers of Psalm 118 and Psalm 22. Here's Hippolytus. Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Hippolytus is a very well-respected writer uh, at the beginning of the third century, end of the second century, beginning of the third century. He writes this, I produce now the prophecy of Solomon, which speaks of Christ and announces clearly and perspicuously the things concerning the Jews and those which not only are befalling them at the present time, but those too which shall befall them in the future age on account of the contumacy and audacity which they exhibited toward the prince of life. For the prophet says, the ungodly said, reasoning with themselves, but not aright, that is about Christ, and he is clean contrary to our doings and words, and upbraideth us with our offending the law, and professes to have knowledge of God, and he calls himself the child of God. And therefore, As in the person of the Jews, Solomon speaks again of this righteous one, who is Christ, saying thus, 
He was made to reprove our thoughts, and he makes his boast that God is his Father. Let us see then if his words be true, and let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. For if the just man be the Son of God, God will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Let us condemn him with a shameful death, for by his own saying, he shall be respected. And what is this prophecy that the prophet is referencing? Again, it's from Wisdom chapter 2, verses 12 through 20. I'll just read just a quick bit of Wisdom 2, starting in, this is just verse 12. Who is this but Christ? They say, come, let us remove the righteous one because he is hateful to us. He sets himself contrary to our doings. Again, that's Hippolytus quoting wisdom. And Hippolytus says, who is this but the Christ that had this done to him? Here's Cyprian of Carthage writing about 250. He says, And again, where the sacred scripture speaks of the tortures which consecrate God's martyrs and sanctify them in the very trial of suffering. And then he quotes wisdom, chapter three, verses four through eight. He's calling wisdom part of the sacred scripture. Here's Methodius uh, writing in his Banquet of the Ten Virgins in Discourse 1. He's writing close to 300 AD, probably around like 280. He writes, And in the Book of Wisdom, a book full of all virtue, the Holy Spirit now openly drawing his hearers to uh, continence and chastity sings on this wise. Memorial thereof is immortal because it is known with God and with men. Okay, so he's calling the book of wisdom a book full of all virtue by the Holy Spirit. So, why do Protestants not have these books in our Bibles? To find this answer, we start at the end of the first century. Like the apostles, the early Christians were using the Septuagint and the apocryphal books to witness to the Jews, and it was having a profound effect leading many to repent and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So, certain leading rabbis at the end of the first century decided to outlaw its use in the Jewish communities. Doug Woodward writes this, At the end of the first century, with its temple in ruin, tens of thousands killed in the revolt that ended in the tragedy at Masada, and Rome still in control of their land, how could these new rabbinic fo- this new rabbinic form of Judaism rid itself of their rival pesky Jewish, Jewish sect, the Christians? Okay, remember, uh, the that Christianity was viewed as a Jewish sect, an off, offshoot of Judaism, whereas it's actually the fulfillment of Judaism. He continues, uh, Rabbi Akiba, its newly acknowledged leader, elected to attack Christianity's principal text, namely the Septuagint, translated from the Old Hebrew in Alexandria 400 years earlier. Akila, 
one of Akiba's pupils soon produced a new Greek translation. His translation was not based on the original Hebrew used at Alexandria 400 years earlier. Instead, it was based on a new version of the Hebrew text, which would one day become known as the Masoretic text. So, what did the early Christians give as the reason that the Jews take out the apocryphal books from their scriptures. Well, it's kind of like the Jefferson Bible. If you're familiar with the Jefferson Bible, you know Jefferson, he, he respected Jesus and Jesus' teachings, and he saw a lot of value in Jesus' teachings in basically controlling the masses. Uh, but he refused um, to, as an enlightenment, uh, disciple. He refused to believe in the miraculous things in the Bible and the things in the Bible in the New Testament uh, speaking to the divinity of Jesus. And so he just cut them out. Well, it's kind of similar to what the early Christians say happened with the Septuagint. Justin Martyr writes in 160, but I am far from putting reliance in your Jewish teachers who refuse to admit the interpretation made by the 70 elders who were with Ptolemy of the Egyptians is a correct one. He's speaking of the Septuagint there. I wish you to observe that they have altogether taken away many scriptures from the translations affected by those 70 elders who were with Ptolemy and by which this very man who was crucified and proved to have been set forth expressly as God and man. So, Justin says around 160 that these certain Jewish teachers realize that the passages in the Septuagint, particularly in these apocryphal books, were clearly demonstrating that Jesus was the Christ. And those leaders did not like it, so they cut those passages out. Origen in 240 says, There was a learned Hebrew who was said to the son of a wise man to have been specially trained to succeed his father. I had conversations with him on many subjects. I remember hearing from him the names of those elders mentioned in the account of Susanna. This indicated that he did not reject the history of Susanna. This is an apocryphal book that was added to, uh, that was part of Daniel, basically. Probably you will reply, why then is the history of Susanna not in there, Daniel? If, as you say, their wise men hand down such stories by tradition? Well, the answer is that they hid from the knowledge of those peoples as many of the passages as they could that contained any scandal against the elders, rulers, and judges. Some of these have been preserved in the hidden writings. Well, as you've witnessed, the early Christians really love the Book of Wisdom particularly chapter two. So, I want to read a large section um, of that book for you, uh, as well as not just some from chapter two, but some of chapter three as well. And I want to demonstrate why these would have been so, these words would have been so encouraging for the early Christians. All right, so here's wisdom chapter 2, starting in verse 12. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to pause from time to time and just break down how prophetic these words were. The writer starts by quoting unrighteous rulers, uh, what they are going to be saying about the Messiah, the one who calls himself a child of God. So he quotes them saying, let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. Let's stop and think about that first. Think about all the prophecies that that were um, fulfilled in Jesus. Let us lie and wait for the righteous man, plotting to murder Jesus numerous times. It says, because he's inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. Well, yeah, you see so many people realized or in those Jewish communities that if they let Jesus go on like this, they would lose their place and their nation as you read about in John chapter 11. He reproaches us for sins. Remember, he calls them um, plotting to kill him. And they say that, no, he must have a demon, right? He professes to have knowledge of God, right? He calls God his father, right? He calls himself a child of the Lord. Continuing in verse 14, he became to us a reproof of our thoughts. Remember, Jesus would say their thoughts to their face, Why are you debating in your heart uh, whether it is right for the Son of Man to say he can forgive sins, right? He's, He's reading their minds. Verse 15, the very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. No one ever spoke like him, right? Verse 16, we are considered by him as something base, and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Verse 17, let us see if his words are true, and let's test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him, and he will deliver him, from the hand of his adversaries. You remember how they were mocking Jesus on the cross? If God really is your father, come down, right? God will help you, come down. Let's think about Matthew 27. I'm going to read some of Matthew 27, starting in verse 39 and read to verse 43. Just listen to Matthew and think about those words that were just said from the wisdom of Solomon a couple hundred years before Matthew. Matthew 27, starting verse 39, those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders were mocking him saying, he saved others and he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God now deliver him if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. Now consider these words. We're getting back into chapter two of the wisdom of Solomon. It writes, let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is. And let us make a trial of his forbearance. 
think about him before Caiaphas and Annas and them torturing him. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Thus they reasoned, but they were led astray, for their wickedness blinded them, and they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hope for the wages of holiness, nor discern the prize for blameless souls. For God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his company experience it. Through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his company experience it. You remember in Matthew 27, it says that Pilate knew that it was because of envy that they handed him, Jesus, over to Pilate. Wow. So you can tell pretty quickly how if a chief priest who had taken part in the execution of the Messiah read these words or had these words read to him, which were in their own Bible, you can see how that might cause someone to feel a little bit squeamish, a little bit uncomfortable. And you know what happens throughout history when those in charge feel threatened or be made uncomfortable by those who have knowledge of their actions. Well, they try to get rid of the evidence, right? And that's exactly what Rabbi Akiba and his disciple Aquila, uh, Aquila did right there at the end of the first century. Now, I just want to close by reading some of chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, and I want you to see the contrast now between the wicked and the righteous, and the promises of good to the righteous while also promising suffering. Think about the disciples of Jesus reading chapter 2 of wisdom and then reading chapter 3 of wisdom. Put yourself in the place of one of his disciples in that first century. This is chapter 3 of wisdom now, starting in verse 1. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be a disaster, and their going from us to be their destruction. But they are at peace. It's really interesting. I'm going to pause there in verse 3. He's saying no torment is ever going to touch them. But that doesn't mean that they're going to not experience suffering. It just means they're not going to be destroyed, right? The eyes of the world are going to think, see, these guys were fake. God abandoned them. They're dying shameful deaths just like their leader. But in reality, they are at peace. Continuing in verse 4, for though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of himself. Like gold in the furnace, he tried them and like a sacrificial burnt offering, he accepted them. 
in the, now I'll just pause there. That's at the end of verse six. They deserve discipline. We don't deserve anything um, but harm, basically, from God because of our sins. And yet, the evil that befalls us, us, God uses like discipline to actually refine us and to make us more like his son. Think about, um, and think about, yes, yeah, Psalm 16 where the writer says, precious in the sight of the, Lord's is the, of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Now think about the return of Christ and what's going to happen, what uh, Jesus and Paul uh, say about the return of Christ. Here's verse seven of chapter three of wisdom. In the time of their visitation, they will shine forth and they will run like sparks through the stubble. They will govern nations and rule over peoples, and the Lord will reign over them forever. Those who trust in Him will understand truth, and the faithful will abide with Him in love, because grace and mercy are upon His holy ones, and He watches over His elect. Just powerful stuff from the wisdom of Solomon. Chapter 3, talking about the return and them shining right? Glorified bodies running like sparks through the stubble, warring with Christ and his return. And then you'd have millennial reign stuff, them governing with Christ, ruling with Christ. Just incredible prophetic information here from wisdom of Solomon. Chapter two and three, just incredible. So what do you think? Was God silent for over 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist? If he was speaking, maybe we should take the time to read and study those words. I want to encourage you as we're now closing to check out David Bursault's uh, two talks, actually three talks on the Septuagint and two talks on the Apocrypha, which you can find on the Scroll Publishing website. He's also done some YouTube videos on the Apocrypha and um, the Septuagint, which you can find on the YouTube channel Anabaptist Perspectives. I encourage you all to watch those as well. And check out Doug Woodford's um, book, Rebooting the Bible. Really cool information there. All right. Well, I just want to encourage you all again to whatever you read, whatever you watch, filter it through the simple words of Christ. God bless y'all.
hammered by shadows The substance the Father holds Is kept for His church Like lightning Flashes in the night sky Coming back for your bride Lord, haste the day When we see you Empowered and in glory Wave goodbye to morning Lord, haste the And let us hear your wonderful voice Lord, let us seek your kingdom with all our hearts Lord, let us see your majesty And let us hear